We are going to continue today, however, in James. We're going to be in James chapter 4 today. Um, This marks the first time that I will have ever delivered a message on a text that I was assigned or that I was asked specifically to work from. And it's a little bit it's a little bit different than one that kind of comes from, you know, your journals or your studies or something where you're reading and you know something just hits you. It's especially in the early stages, but in this case, what it's done is it's I hope driven me to go a little more slowly in the early stages of prep, particularly in, you know, those those early stages and uh, so that's where we're going to be in James chapter 4. We're going to read that in just a minute. Now, I feel like I need to say this. Sinclair Ferguson is a preacher, I think, who said this first. I determined to be a man who sits under my own preaching, he said. And that resonated with me a while back, and I've tried to do that. Whatever message or sermon I happen to be preaching. So you should know that whatever we talk about and whenever I speak, whatever I'm speaking about the gospel, I'm speaking to myself first. One of the most profound books I've read personally in recent years is Note to Self, Preaching the Gospel to Yourself by a guy named Joe Thorne. Uh, and I've gone back to that book so many times as I realized this, that whatever I share or write or sing about the gospel, I am the one in most desperate need of, the most dependent upon and should be the most grateful person in the room for the gospel. I think that's what Paul meant when he called himself the chief of sinners. And in that vein, you should know many times, I think it's a mistake and an error. Sometimes we think that when the guy stands up to speak in the pulpit, he's got it all together. He's got this down. So he's going to share from us from his expertise. You, you should just know I have had a miserable week personally and spiritually. And I am blessed and grateful for God to have given me a wife who loves me when I am at my worst. So to put myself in that frame of mind after some of the moments I've had this week, just miserable, horribly in need of the gospel again in my life this week. So as I'm talking about these things here first... Okay, so that when we because when preachers start going, they talk about you and you and you and you and you. You just know when you do that, when I say you, I mean me. Okay, you feel me? Okay. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. I actually never heard that until this week, but it's kind of neat. It's I like that saying. It's a very blunt. This is how you should live letter written specifically to Jewish believers. It's called the letter to the 12 tribes by James. Now. Some of the people, and specifically in this passage, he's probably speaking to very, very religious people. These were Jews, right? They They were all about the law. It was very special to them. These Jews probably were pretty wealthy. Now, of course, we use the term Pharisees. That's a common word in kind of church vocabulary. But we use that term. It's come to mean someone whose focus is on their religious duty. They were rule keepers who thought they had been blessed in their business and in their wealth because of their rule keeping, right? They were religious, and because they were religious, they thought they had been blessed, and they were pretty proud of it. Because it was written to this group, to believers, we immediately know two things, and we must keep in mind. One, it applies to us as Christ followers. Clearly, this book is meant for Christians. It's written to Christians, written to Jews who are following, trying to follow Christ, right? 
So we, we have to know that. Two, you have to keep in mind how first century Jews would have heard, understood, processed this kind of a letter. Remember that for the Jew, the law was a weighty matter, right? However, it had become such a weighty matter to the point of religious pride as to how well one might be doing in keeping the law, right? Greater obedience resulted in greater blessing, which was often, including the circles that James is addressing, uh, seen outwardly in how much stuff God allowed you to accumulate, how much wealth God allowed you to have, right? These were prosperity gospel Pharisees. So they were kind of a special breed. So not only were they rich, they were religious, they were comfortable, and they were proud of how spiritual they were because clearly others could see how blessed they were materially, which obviously meant they were being obedient to the law. Do you see how twisted and wrapped up this is? They were, they were wrong, of course. Now, we also have to remember that James, you know, James is the book that mentions faith versus works. And, and I've even been in discussions where people think that Paul and James would have had a heated disagreement about that. I don't, I don't think so. I think they, they go hand in hand. James, however, is, is addressing a more specific group, which we put ourselves in as religious, as church people. But this group had tied the two, faith and works, together too closely. James' point would not have been that what we do matters because... Wait, let me say that again. James' point would not have been that what we do does not matter because we're saved. I'm saved, so what I do doesn't matter. That was not what he would say. He, he would argue that it absolutely matters what you do and how you live, but not for the reason that we might think. Your obedience doesn't earn you grace. It earns you nothing. Not more blessing, not more grace, not more love, not more God. Your obedience should never come from what we're going to get, but it should be driven by compelled by, it should flow from the fact that you have already been given everything if you belong to Christ. You have already been given life and forgiveness and grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to the letter to the Ephesians. If, in fact, if, in fact, if, in fact, you belong to Christ. We'll come back to that one at the end. Right now, let's read our text, pray, and we'll get to work. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth that is there. Uh, Lord, I I thank you for the privilege of speaking. Lord, I ask you to help me uh, again, Lord, to handle it rightly. Uh, Lord, to say only what you would have me to say and nothing more. Lord, and again, as as I have strived to be, uh, Lord, uh, you speak to me and work in my heart first and foremost of all. Thank you. 
Thank you, Lord, again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We give you thanks and praise for what you're going to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we keep in mind that we've already established that James' intended audience is church people, yes, Jewish church people, but still it's church people, that's us, these verses and the whole book of James takes on a lot more sting. Right? These are tough words. And he's talking to us. We're in this camp. If James were writing to this today, he'd be speaking to us, to church crowd, religious people, church people, particularly those who can't claim to follow Christ. That's who he's writing to. I might even say especially those of us who have been in the camp for a while. I've said many times before, speaking of myself as well, that those of us who have grown up in church or been believers a long time are especially vulnerable to the poison of legalism, to the to the deadly leaven of Phariseeism, to the misery of, of prideful performance-based theology. That I'm going to earn my way to God, or God must, be pretty, God must be pretty pleased with how well I've been doing. I say misery because what we don't want to admit, those of us that are prone to that, is that the flip side of that Pharisee is that while we feel pretty good about ourselves when we're doing okay, while we stride pretty wide when we're keeping our rules... Notice I said our rules. When we do mess up, when we break a rule, when we are cowering in the dark because we've sinned again, terrified of what will happen if anybody were to find out, we are thrown into despair because we've placed the weight of our justification on us. My friends, this is not the Christian life we were meant for. It is not. That is not true faith. That is not sanctification. This is not the gospel. Now, one side note, and I just, I just always, again, I'm talking to myself here, that to always speak in mind, to always keep in mind when we're dealing with Scripture and texts that rebuke empty religion and Pharisees and legalism is that we don't want to think it has anything to do with us. But the person who stomps and says the loudest, I'm no Pharisee, you just spotted the Pharisee. If, if, if I'm thinking... I'm not Pharisee. I'm probably the one that he's talking about. I'm the Pharisee. Remember Luke 18. It was the Pharisee who said, I thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as them. The one who went home justified before God was the one who was on his knees, beating his breast, humbly crying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? So... As you saw the title probably on the sign this week, and I really struggled with that. I still don't know that I'm entirely comfortable with that, but it was three weeks ago and I had to come up with a title. So we read the passage, The Arrogance of Religion. But what I found was, it was interesting, after I started, after I started processing this, we're going to have four aspects of that arrogance that I think James would, would point out to us if we're going to think along those lines. Uh, and the first is an arrogant tongue. First part of verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, James has already addressed the tongue in this letter, mainly in chapter 3. He calls it things like vile, a restless evil, a deadly poison set on fire by hell. Strong words, right? He's making the point that our words hold tremendous power. We are relational creatures. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are relational creatures. We relate. Not all of us relate very well, but we relate. We interact. We are designed to be in some kind of community. That's the way we're wired. And because of that, how we speak to and treat one another matters greatly. 
It's why our words and how we deliver them can do such profound good or such profound harm. The language here in the Greek for that do not speak evil, just in my, my geekery for language, it, said, it might more be accurately rendered, speak not or stop speaking. The implication being that uh, stopping an action that's already in progress. In other words, don't act all spiritual like we don't know what he's talking about. You know how many times this week you've said something you shouldn't have said. Ouch. Or maybe listened to what you shouldn't have. This is what James would say. Stop! Stop it! Slander, harsh words, critical spirits and tongues, backbiting, gossip. Stop! That's what James would say if he were standing here. Gossip is probably the one that gets me the most worked up. I'm not saying I've always been completely innocent of gossip. I certainly haven't. But it just, it's, it's especially to me, and I'm, my experience is especially destructive. Some of you know how I handle gossip, how I try to handle gossip. Comment comes along the lines of, you know how people are saying that, or I heard that, or did you hear about, really? Where did you hear that? Oh, I, I don't want to say where I heard that. My response is, and some of you will vouch for this, my response is usually, then you need to stop talking about it. If you are either... <clears throat> Unwilling to share where you heard it, or you're sharing for prayer and it's out of confidence, what a cop out. Or if you're unwilling to go back up the line to where it started, stop talking about it. That is gossip, and it's in the same list of things that God hates as witchcraft and idolatry and sin in its worst and most vile forms. Gossip is in that list. He hates it. Why? Because it divides and discourages and destroys. And I have seen the far end of church destroyed by gossip. And it is not a pretty place. That's just one. There's more than one version of, a, of an evil, vile tongue. But that one just seems to be especially destructive. Matthew Henry, an old Puritan commentator that I, I like to read, but he's usually one of the last because you kind of have to work through him because... He's a Puritan. He lived in the 1600s, and he reads like a little more King James. You have to work your way through it. But this, this paragraph kind of caught my eye. It's a little poetic in, in a language we don't speak like much anymore, so uh, follow with me on this. This is what Matthew Henry says about the tongue in this verse. It is required of us that we be tender to the good name of our brethren. Where we cannot speak well, we had better say nothing than to speak evil. We must not take pleasure in making known the faults of others, divulging things that are secret merely to expose them, nor in making more of their known faults than they really deserve. And least of all, in making false stories and spreading things concerning them of which they are altogether innocent. What is this but to raise the hatred and encourage the persecutions of the world against those who are engaged in the same interests with ourselves and therefore with whom ourselves must stand or fall. That last sentence, in other words, is to continue to gossip, to slander, to criticize, not constructively, to hurtfully comment, to run each other down, is to strengthen the world's hatred of us. Because those who we should be most demonstrating grace and love and peace to the world with, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are often those who we are the most hurtful to and about. Shame on us. And James says... 
Stop it. Stop it. Do not speak evil. Warren Wearsby, another commentator, says, If all of us would devote ourselves to obeying the word of God and not to investigating to see how well others obey it. I'm going to say that one again. I'm going to start that again. Check in here. If all of us would devote ourselves to obeying the word of God and not investigating to see how well others obey it, our churches would have harmony and peace. Indeed, the arrogant tongue of religious people, us, is damaging indeed. How many churches have been divided, disgraced, destroyed by hateful and critical tongues? How many well-intentioned dragons have breathed the fire of hell and burned down their collective testimony for Christ? Indeed, Mr. Wearsby. But we're going to see that this kind of tongue may be a symptom as well as a cause because an arrogant tongue comes from an arrogant heart. Second part of verse 11 through verse 12. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, then you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. That's verse 11. Now, we have to unpack this just a little bit. What does this mean to judge the law? The phrase speaks against a brother or judges his brother, I think, can generally fall into two categories. That's speaking evil, speaking against a brother. Speaking evil, speaking against a brother. One is religious people talking about non-religious people. Again, don't act all spiritual like you don't know what I'm talking about. Us talking about them. Right? This would be the guy in Luke 18. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. <laughs> he thanks God that he's not as bad as those, those sinners. And we see that, and even we say, what an arrogant Pharisee guy this is. Ridiculous. But yet, if we are totally honest, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we who have been in church for a long, long time, it is disturbingly familiar. I mean, do you really want to be the guy who stands up and says, thank you, God, that I'm not judgmental like all those other Pharisees? What? You need to go read Luke 18 again and let that seep in. And remember who it was that God said went home justified. The other category, what James is probably dealing with more specifically here, is religious people cutting down other religious people. This usually happens over trivial matters of secondary importance. In this time, it might have been things like eating or not eating meat cooked in pagan ceremonies, following certain Jewish physical customs. Today, it might be things like certain points of theology and practice of faith that are not gospel essential, uh, listening to certain kinds of music, whether Christians can or do certain things or go certain places. Now, listen, to be clear, there are things we should do and things we shouldn't do. My line's not where your line is. That's between you and God, and you, and you progressively, that, that goes as you mature in Christ. And there are things worth separating over, especially in the area of theology and, and practice of faith. Many times on these things, even these kind of disagreements, though, should be handled with grace and respect. The problem is many times they're not. That's the problem. And we get hung up on things that really aren't all that much worth getting hung up on. And Christians, church people, over trivial, secondary, non-gospel essential matters can be, myself included, we can be some of the most disrespectful, argumentative people in the world. Watch Facebook. When election season comes, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
Now, we've just discussed what some of that looks like when we're not nice with each other. The thing is, and what he's pointing out, the thing is, we should know better. Come on. We should know better. And probably it reveals something deeper that we don't want to think about and deal with. To do these things, to speak evil against a brother, to speak against a brother and judge a brother, is to speak evil against the law and judge the law. And thinking about what this might be, what, what might be the cleanest, least confusing, simplest explanation of what this means in order that we may apply it, as I'm trying to unpack this, this is where I landed. Maybe some would say an oversimplification, but this, this I think, covers where we're, where we're dealing today. When we're trying to summarize for Christians the law of God in New Testament believer terms, we're trying to summarize the Christian life, how to live so that we know God and make him known. There are a few places you can go scripturally. There's a few places you can go and kind of get a laser focus. One might be Micah 6.8. Throw that up, Ron. Throw Micah 6.8 up there. What else does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Another translation says, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That would be a summary of following God, right? Go to the New Testament version of this. I think we see in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. You know that, right? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if we're trying to boil down, if we're trying to boil down how do we live for Christ, I could boil it down for you based on those verses to four words. If you're taking notes, write down these letters in caps. Write down these letters somewhere. Write them in the margin of your Bible somewhere on that Mark passage. L-G-L-P. Love God. Love people. In every way, at every opportunity, which implies that they're before you. We'll get to that one in a minute. Now, James, even back in chapter 2, verse 8 of James, he says, If you really want to fulfill the royal law of God according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So if the law of God is summed up in, fulfilled in loving God and loving others in Christ, then the critical, judgmental, arrogant, religious superiority that he's dealing with here is in direct conflict with the whole of God's law. Do you see the problem? It is fundamentally opposed to what God and his law is about. For it is not loving. The way these people were treating one another was not very loving. Not only is it in conflict with his law, not only, excuse me, not only is it not hearing and doing like James 1.22 says, but we would place ourselves in a place above the law of God as if we're not accountable to it. We would operate as if we were not under its universal authority, somehow above it, somehow not subject to it or possibly even in control of it because we get to call the shots whether we obey it or not. How ridiculous is that? I immediately think of one other being who intended to rise to a place of authority, of preeminence and glory that only God should have occupied, and he was thrown out of heaven for it. And he's now God's enemy and our enemy, eternally separated from God in love, and mercy has no chance, facing an inevitable end in the eternal lake of fire, and he's determined to take as many of us with him as he can. 
when we have that kind of attitude, we have the heart and mind of Satan himself. Does that not bother you? Does that not trouble you? We act like Satan. When, we're, when we allow our pride and criticism and self to take us to a place where we act like we're not accountable to God. When we treat others and one another contemptibly and harshly and judgmentally, we attempt to place ourselves where only God should stand as judge, lawgiver, and revealer of sin. To which we might say, but Dave, shouldn't we stand up against sin? Yes, we should stand against certain things rightfully, graciously, gently, sometimes firmly, but that's not what this is talking about, and you know it. You know that's not what this is talking about. And James has a pretty blunt response. Read verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James says, God is judged, not you. God alone can save and destroy. So who do you think you are placing yourself above the law? Ha! He might add that some of us might want to read Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning of verse 12, and stop thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. James doesn't pull any punches when he's dealing with the matter. Two clear marks of a religious, empty, religious person who just really doesn't get what it's about. And I would submit possibly, possibly has never truly experienced the gospel. It might be lost. Arrogant tongue arrogant heart. And these lead to and are worked out in an arrogant life. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist. It appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, for today's work in the text, it's kind of funny that the, the longest chunk doesn't really require the most explanation. Uh, with the possible exception in my thinking this week to speak to a couple of errors, which we may do in a moment. Most of us are probably familiar with this little, little block of text. We're familiar with these three verses enough to know that this is basically living your life under the illusion that you're in control. Whether you're a Christian or not. Living your life, planning, conducting business, conducting your life, conducting behavior as if you're in control and have all the time in the world, which really is supreme arrogance when you stop to think about it, that you think you're in control. Are you God? No, I'm not either. To, to think we're in control, to think we have lots of time, I'm in good health and decent financial position, so everything's fine. It's ludicrous. It only takes one phone call from the doctor. It only takes one visit from a law enforcement officer on next of kin duty. It only takes one natural disaster, as we've seen again last week in Moore, Oklahoma, to obliterate this ridiculous notion that we're in control. Now, many questions might arise from those kind of moments. Is God really sovereign? If he's sovereign, why is this evil occurring? Those are questions worth doing. But if you want to talk about those, we'll talk another time. There's a lot of other questions that would take a lot of time to answer, but they're not within the scope here because these people would not have questioned God's sovereignty. The Jewish believers, coming from a long line of understanding and being under Almighty God, they wouldn't have questioned God's sovereignty, at least not in word. 
in their comfortable, religious, blessed wealth because they were so good, right? And apparent business acumen. These people were good at business. In these things, however, they lived and they planned and they even conducted their business as if he was not in control. Practical atheism. You've heard this term before. Saying that you believe God exists, yet living like he doesn't. Saying we believe God exists, but living like he doesn't. This doesn't always look like living wild and debauchery and sometimes it looks like good business. Now, a couple of counterpoints here. To use these verses to say that we shouldn't plan or invest or build our future or be successful in business or whatever work we're involved in is sorely inaccurate. To argue that wealth is automatically bad is an error. Theophilus was quite wealthy. And in fact, he entirely funded Luke's lengthy research and travels and investigations from which we get the book of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, written in the introduction to Most Excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a wealthy man who became a believer who put his money where it was supposed to be. The question being addressed here is not really their business success or even their wealth. It's their heart. That's what he's dealing with. It's their arrogant assumption that God had given them their stuff for them because they were good. Does that sound like any TV preachers you might have heard of lately? Prosperity gospel. It's their use of those things for themselves and not for his glory. It's their approach to their stuff and their business and their money as if they never really needed to consider him in the first place. ESV Study Bible has a great note, the one thing I pulled from there. Every business decision must be based on submission to God's will. And you can imply all decisions in that statement as well. These people were simply not doing that. And they should have known better. How do you do that? A couple of side note application points for this. How do you do that? How do you conduct business under submission to God's will? And conduct, when we say conduct business, we can think specifically about that realm of life, but you can also apply this to making decisions across the board, whether it's where to go to school, who to marry, whatever. Does it hinder, help, or hold up my sanctification, my progress as a follower of Christ? If it hinders, it's probably not a good decision. Agreed? Agreed? Okay, let me say that again. If you're about to make a decision that hinders your sanctification and following Christ, is it a bad decision? That scares me. I don't hear enough yeses on that. Seriously? Maybe I need to be preaching a different message. Does it enable me to better serve Jesus, share Jesus, and support Jesus' church and mission globally? We might add, does it enable me to better lead and pastor my family, if you're a father in particularly? Does it ethically, morally, or spiritually or in any way conflict With me following Christ. Those are pretty cut and dry, simple, helpful decision-making questions. And if you're facing a question that or a decision and and you want to know, I wonder if this is in submission in line with God's will for my life. There's some questions for you. And if you answer those, if you answer, yes, it's going to hinder my sanctification. And you say, yes, the decision. These are the questions to ask if you want to conduct business or make decisions under submission to God's will. With these kinds of questions, we can avoid that, I will say, vile prosperity gospel. That these people had lived under with such devotion that they eventually just took God out of their money and their business altogether. As a counterpoint, though, just in the way I think sometimes, 
As a counterpoint, there's an equal danger here on the other end of the spectrum. It would be poverty theology. You see, prosperity theology is what these people had. I have more money, more stuff, which means I'm more blessed, which means I must be holier than you. That's prosperity gospel, right? I, 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 I'm thinking of four or five preachers I remember seeing on TV that would say that thing. If you obey God, you're going to get more stuff. I mean, verbatim, that's what he said. I'm not going to say who. I'll tell you later. Poverty theology says, I've sold all my stuff. I've moved to a smaller house. I've given away more money. I've gone on more mission trips. I have less stuff, which means I obviously get it more than you do. Which means I must be closer to God than you are. God may tell you to give up all your money. He may tell you to make a whole bunch of money so you can fuel this guy who's going and gave up all his money. The problem is either one of those to camp out there, both are idols of money. Both are religion-based Both come from a place of religious arrogance. Notice that on both of them, the problem is not the money, not the possessions and how they're dealt with. It's the heart. Right? Look at verse 16. Wherever you fall in this spectrum, again, James, I love you, buddy. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Whatever your idol is, Either way, if you're hung up with your stuff, whether you have a whole lot or not, or, or a whole little, either way, you're boasting in yourself, not in Jesus. And it's plainly called evil. What do we do with that? We're almost there. Back up for a second. Let's think through our points so far. An arrogant tongue, hurtful, vile, damaging, gossiping, gossiping slandering, divisive, arrogant tongue is probably evidence of an arrogant heart. You with me? Prideful, haughty, placing itself above God's law and in his sole place as judge. An arrogant tongue is probably evidence of an arrogant heart, which fuels and almost certainly leads to an arrogant life, living without consideration of or submission to the sovereignty of God. With only one end. It will work its way toward our last verse and point. Arrogant disobedience. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Simply put, these people knew exactly what James was talking about in their context and even in their specific situation. And they should have known better than to let their heart and lives be this way. They knew that to fulfill the law of God was summed up in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, demonstrated by loving your neighbor as yourself. They'd been told that. And they were not being very loving at all. They knew better. And so should we. So should we. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that with, what, 300, 300 so we'll say 300 people here, God can be saying, very specifically, 300 different things when you encounter this. And there's 300 different things that God is putting in your mind right now. You know some adjustments you should have made in your life a long time ago. You know you should have been faithful in worship all this time. You know you need to be in community. You know you need to be serving. You know you need to be giving. You know you need to be sharing Christ. You know that. 
Perhaps there's some things in your life that you know should not be there. Attitudes like this, something maybe more secret, you know it's there. And you know better. You do. If you've been, in, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, certainly if you've been sitting in this church for any length of time, you know better. And you know exactly what God's saying to you. You're not doing those things. James says, you're sinning. Plain and simple. <laughs> Steve and I talk about grace and justice genes and where we fall on the spectrum. James is not a mercy guy. James is a truth and justice guy. And he tells you straight, point out. If there's things you know you should have been doing between you and God and you're not, you're sinning. As one commentator said, knowledge without practice. Knowledge, the things of God, without practice is imputed to a man as a great and presumptuous sin. Whatever that thing is in your head right now that you know you should be doing or have done, but you have not and are not, that is sin. That's not easy. That's not nice. But it's the truth. My job right now is to tell you the truth. And whatever that thing is in your head between you and God right now is sin. And we're going to deal with it in just a minute. Now, there's two questions. When you see this verse, whoever knows to do the right thing and doesn't do it, or the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's two questions that usually come up in discussions I've been involved with this verse. The first one we're going to move quickly on. It's what about those who don't know? What about those who've never heard of Jesus? What about those who don't know? The implication, of course, is what about those who have never heard the gospel, never heard the Jesus? Are they accountable to God? The simple answer is, because we don't have time, nor is it the focus of this message, is that according to Romans 1 and 2, all men have opportunity to know God as creator and Lord and to worship him accurately as such, but inevitably and without exception, they get it wrong. So all are guilty and all are condemned. As David Platt said, if you could find a, a, a guiltless man in the middle of Africa that had never heard of Jesus and he was guiltless, would he go to heaven? Yes, but he doesn't exist. That man does not exist. All have had opportunity. All have gotten it wrong. So all are guilty and condemned. All need Jesus. That's the simple answer. To go to the most more pertinent one is, what about those who know the will of God and don't do it? Meaning us, Christians. This book is written to Christians, right? So what about Christians who know the will of God and don't do it? The problem is that when most people ask this kind of question, they're looking for an out. You're looking for a loophole. You're looking for a timetable as to how long you can go down this road that you know you shouldn't be on. Sin upon sin, I would say that probably is. What about the Christian who disobeys God's word and will? Clearly, if you go to Hebrews 12 and read that chapter, clearly we're told that if that person is truly a Christian, they will receive chastisement, punishment, discipline from God until they submit and repent. That's what happens to the Christian who disobeys God's will. God's chastening is evidence of God's love and grace and proof that you are truly His. If there is no discipline... You are not his child. The word of God said that, not me. I mean, I just did, but it comes from the word of God. Right? 
If there's no discipline in a person's life, whatever form it may take, if there's none, I don't care if you've been in church since the day you were born, you are lost. Hebrews would say you're an illegitimate child. That's what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. If you are truly His and you know it and we've settled that, and there is chastisement in your life, there is discipline, for goodness sake, come home! Come back to the Lord. What, what does this discipline look like, Dave? Well, it, it might vary. It, it might be the piercing conviction of the Holy Spirit that you have sinned again. It might be the fact that right now, and that thing that God has at the forefront of your mind is making you squirm and sweat, cold sweat right now. That might be God's discipline in your life. We call that stage one. <laughs> right? It might be the fact that when you stand up in the invitation in a minute, your hands are going to go in the chair in front of you and your knuckles are going to be white because you're holding on so hard. It might be the piercing conviction of the Holy Spirit. It, you want to go way down the line, it might be and it could be. And yes, sometimes it is the utter collapse of your life, your health, your family. One word here. If God's discipline... If you are truly a believer and God's discipline takes you that far, that your sin causes the destruction of your life, family, and even your health, listen. Listen. You cannot expect God to automatically fix those things when you repent and get back on track with Him. Those are earthly consequences that may or may not be changed. Probably not. However, He will renew grace in you to endure and deal with in grace and love and mercy that he's going to give you through the earthly consequences of those things. The bigger question is, you go that far down sin's path, whether you're truly his to begin with. That's the more important question. Because we have many, 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 many in the Western American evangelical church who have false assurance. We have churches full of people every week, keeping the rules, attending the service, tithing every paycheck, hearing every sermon, yet there is no real progressive outworking in their life of the gospel. There is no love, there is no patience, there is no serving, there is no sharing, there is no growing, there is no repenting. Rules are easy. Following Christ, being a repenter is hard. And it only gets harder. And if you come to that realization and you kind of wonder, I wonder if I'd have signed up in the first place if I'd have known that was what it was going to be about. Perhaps we should go back and see if we signed up. You need to make certain that you are His. But there is the possibility that maybe you're not. Your religion, your rules, can't ensure that. So what do we do? What do we do with these verses? How do we avoid the arrogance of, of this empty kind of religion? Four things. One, which is not going to surprise you that I would say, one, make sure you're a Christian. Right? Make sure, not that you prayed a prayer in third grade and there's been nothing since. Not that you've been in church your whole life. Make sure you have repented of sin, and are still doing that, by the way, you have repented of sin and you've trusted in Christ alone. Here's what you need. God, man, Christ response. God is holy. He is right. He is just. 
God is not us. We are not God, right? God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. We are imperfect. Because of that, we are in violation of God. We have only one way to know God because of this. That is under wrath and judgment. There is nothing we can do to change that. Because He's holy and we're not. Lean in. Lean in. But Christ came. Oh, come on! But Christ came! For you and for me! He died the death that we wouldn't have to die. He paid the debt that I wouldn't, not that I wouldn't have to pay, that I couldn't pay to begin with. And all of my hope, all of my life, everything rests there, not in me, because I'm not holy. And there is an inseparable divide between me and God that there's nothing I can do about. And until you realize that and place your faith in what He did on a cross, only soul, that's the response. You repent of sin and self and trying to earn anything. You repent of whatever that looks like. And you trust in Christ alone and His finished work at the Christ. That at the cross. That's how you make sure you're a Christian. And until you're sure you've done that, you're not sure. It's not a sinner's prayer. You prayed with a kid with no evidence when you were a kid. Lost. It's not I grew up in church. My parents were pastors or whatever. Lost. It's not I'm a pastor. Lost. Not, well, I, I believe in Jesus. Lost. You repent of sin and you faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you make sure you're a Christian. That's number one. Number two, repent. I, I don't think you can apply God's word without that word. Martin Luther was the one who said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. It's the way we, it's the way we become saved. And for lack of a better way of putting it, it's the way we stay saved. You start. How do you get saved? I want to repent of my sin. And yes, that, that can be done through a sinner's prayer, but it's not the prayer that does it. It's the repentance and faith, right? I want to repent of sin and trust Jesus. And you know what you do from that point forward? You repent of sin and trust Jesus. You repent of sin and trust Jesus. You repent of sin and trust Jesus. And you do that for the rest of your life. So when we're talking about things in our heart that are not right and attitudes that shouldn't be there and things coming out of our mouth that shouldn't be. You know how you deal with that if you're a Christian? You repent. Lord, I had that stinking attitude come out of my mouth again. And I, I don't like it. That's sin. And I don't want to do that. I want to turn from that again. And Lord, I'm pl- I'm a, again, my faith is in you. So I want to repent of that again. Help me not to do that again. God showed you some things today you need to you need to fix, right? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He showed you some things you need to repent of. That's what he showed you. Now, part of that repentance might be being proactive in some things, but don't think you can leave and fix yourself. You can't. Only he working in you, fueling you, cleansing you, remaking you, and that only comes through continual repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. So make sure you're a Christian. Repent. Number three, seek humility. Seek humility. I mean, we're dealing with arrogance here. Arrogance, self, kind of goes together, right? We're dealing with an especially dangerous kind of arrogance because it's wrapped in, cloaked in, and it comes from religion. You know, I used to say that I wanted to stop being a prideful person. 
used to say that. But you know what I've learned? I'm a prideful person. I'll own that. Because for the prideful person to stand up and say, man, I'm glad I overcame that. I'm not prideful anymore. You know what that does? It just shows how prideful you are. I'm a prideful person pursuing humility by the grace of God through repentance. I, I think it was Mark Driscoll I heard say that preacher and it stuck. Whatever form it takes specifically, seek humility. Put God first. Put somebody else ahead of, uh, behind him. Put yourself last. What's the old formula to have joy? You heard that? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Number four, this is a little more broad because we start thinking about specifics and where we are and what to do and we start looking at James and the, you know, the rules kind of sometimes overwhelm us. Simplify your faith life. There are a lot of things we can do. There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of courses. There's a lot of gimmicks and Jesus junk at the bookstore. There is. But this is what you need to do. Every Christian needs three things in your life. Every Christian without exception. You need the Bible. You need Bible study. That's not me in the pulpit. That's you reading the Bible. I don't understand it. Just start reading. There's people to help you. Start reading. You need the Bible study. You need prayer. You need to, you need to talk. It's not complicated. God, I messed up. That's a form of prayer. Right? And you need worship, both in community, large group and small group, and individually. Bible study, prayer, and worship. Second thing, simplify your faith life when you're talking about how to live a Christian life. Pursue God's glory. Seek humility. Flee from sin, however you want to phrase it, by loving God in every way you can think of and by loving people around you and opportunities present themselves and sometimes you find opportunities because of what God's done in your life. Love God. Love people. So today, if you're here and you're in that camp where you're not absolutely certain you belong to Christ for whatever reason, you're not sure, then come today. We're going to do what we call an altar call or an invitation. It's just an opportunity for you to respond to what God is doing in your life today. Brent's going to be down front. If you're not sure you're a Christian, come down front. Settle it. How do I do that? Repent of sin and trust in Christ. If you know you are His, but you see these things in your life, which again, could be, I don't know, most of us, maybe all of us to some degree, if we're really honest with ourselves, what do you do? You repent again and again. And again, God, I was prideful again this week, and it came out against people I love very much. I don't want to do that anymore. Help me, God. Help me turn from that and be more like you. You can do that here at the altar. You can do that there in your seat. You can do that at lunch. But I would press you that if, if that's where you find yourself, don't wait for lunch. Do it now. Whatever you need, we're going to pray. Man's going to come. Brent will be down here. You come to him, seeking humility through repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you, Father, again for the truth, for the weight of your word. 
thank you, Father, for the gospel, for the truth that we have life and freedom and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, for those of us that know you today, but we're still not completely like you because we're still human, we're still alive. Lord, every one of us, we have that, we have that thing that you've brought to our mind today. And Father, perhaps we need to come down and repent before you and start, start the path of making that right. Perhaps it's another person that we have been arrogant and prideful and hurtful with, God, this week or in the recent weeks. Maybe that person is even in this room. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to put you first and them second and ourselves last and go try to make that right as much as we are able. Father, if we're way down the path of sin and we see consequences in our lives and we don't know what to do, I pray, God, that today might be a day of rededication. That we would come and repent and course correct back under the submission to Christ and begin to put our lives back on your road. And Father, if, if we're here today and we're not sure that we're yours, Lord God, I plead with you, work in hearts so that we're not worried about what other people think because you are the one we will answer to, not them. That they would come today and make certain what they've doubted their whole life. By trusting Christ. If there's one here today that's the first time they've ever heard the word, I pray God that if nothing else is clear, the gospel is that we stand before you as sinners, but Jesus came and made a way for us to know you as children. So as we sing, Lord, you do what only you can do. You make yourself known. We'll give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.